welcome to another and a long-awaited uh, episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh, I'm Nate Larkin. Joining me, as always, the maestro, the real brains behind this thing, Aaron Porter, out there in faraway California. Hey, Aaron. Good morning. Yeah, you know, you and I have both been really busy. Life has gotten complicated. We've had interruptions, uh, but and I've heard some murmurs of disappointment, maybe even bordering on discontent from a few of our faithful listeners who are saying, where is the next episode? <laughs> They're spoiled, 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 uh, spoiled. I know. I, I also got a couple of very polite complaints that that's something we promised in the last episode didn't actually go up. So it was it was going to we were going to play a clip from the original 48 hours of frankness. We need to make sure and do that this time. All right, so there will be a clip uh during the break on this episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, you know, we had to abort uh 2 weeks ago or was it last week? That was 2 uh, weeks ago. Yeah. 2 weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some problems with uh, our guest. And then at the same time, my wife began uh, complaining of chest pains. And we don't play with chest pains around this house, not when somebody has had three heart stents. So we uh, we bailed on recording the podcast and rushed Allie to the hospital, spent a day there testing. The good news is her heart checked out great. Bad news is imaging turned up some irregularities in one of her lungs. And that sent us twisting into the wind for a couple of weeks of uh, further testing to find out whether she had something cancerous going on, and that, which is just terrifying. I got to tell you, yeah. here's what I really learned in the last two weeks, Aaron. I still, uh, I don't do well with fear. I don't do well with uncertainty. Um, man, I just wanted answers and I wanted to know and I wanted Allie to be okay. I have found it very difficult up until yesterday when we got great news. So today, you know, I'm I'm two two tons lighter and the world is my oyster and I feel fantastic. But for a couple of weeks, man, I was uh having a hard time keeping my mind on any one thing. Uh you know, I I didn't lose my uh, sobriety the last two weeks, but I got to tell you, I edged a little. Um, it, it, it uh, thank God, I've got. I'm in relationship with brothers, with safe people uh, I can talk with, and I could. I didn't have to go over the edge into medication, uh, but my brain was screaming for some relief from fear. Mm. Uh, anyway. It was, yeah, uh, that is that uh, in between times and waiting for that kind of news. I mean, that's just that is the worst kind of torture, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Really well, I'm super happy that all has turned out well. She must be feeling great today as, as well yeah. as you. Yeah. Uh, so enjoy these days. Yeah, yeah. And I know that my, you know, my peace is supposed to be independent of circumstances and my happiness is not tied to what happens and all that kind of stuff. All that blah, easy blah, for me to blah. say. <laughs> but gosh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm fragile. And I was reminded again the last couple of weeks how fragile I really am. So what are the updates about uh, the upcoming retreat? 
Oh, this I'll tell months you what. away. Tell me what's yeah. going on. I'll tell you what. It seems like it's a long ways away, but it's really not that long. Um, yeah, another thing I had to cancel this last two weeks was a site visit uh, with the planning team to the uh, camp uh, that we'll be convening at out in Eva, Tennessee, about a couple hours west of Nashville. Um so I'll be making that. We re, I will reschedule that today. Now that I can, I, you know, I know I won't be attending my wife's funeral or anything like that. Uh, God forbid. You know, the odds are. Um, so we got that. Two hours yeah. west of Nashville. That must be getting close to what Arkansas border over there. Or? Um, uh, yeah, it's 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 west uh, west northwest. It's up near the Kentucky border. Oh. Okay. Uh, Nice. I get I, honestly my my poor brain because your stupid oceans on the wrong side. Yeah, so yeah, when yeah. You said west of Nashville. I'm like, oh, heading over towards the Blue Ridge. That'll be cool. We should go up to Pigeon Forge or something. And I realized, oh no, that's not. It's isn't it weird how our brains are based around like large bodies of water? Yeah, 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 I yeah. Mean, I experienced the same thing when I when I moved from the east coast of Florida over here. I did. Um, uh, yeah, this is a part of the country known as the land between the lakes. It's TVA country. So, uh, and the camp is actually on a lake. It'll be a beautiful uh, a setting. Uh, it is a youth camp. And so it will be, you know, bunks and bunk ha- bunk houses. It's not a resort. And actually, our guys are going to have to bring uh, their own bedding, bring a, bring a sleeping bag and a pillow or sheets and blankets, whatever you want to do. Uh, I did hear an inquiry from somebody yesterday, wanted to know if they could stay off-site at a hotel and come in for the retreat. And certainly that's fine. I don't know what the hotel options are out there. Uh but anyway, it's going to be just a fantastic week, uh, a weekend. I'm so uh, jazzed about this uh, retreat. And one element of the weekend will be uh, a, uh, a visit with our old friends uh, from the original 48 Hours of Frankness. Anybody who's gone to a 40 hour, 48 Hours of Frankness uh, uh, weekend, remembers Donnie Petrosky and George and Dave. And, uh, we're going to find out where those guys are 10 years down the road in recovery. And we're going to let them lead us through some exercises that will help us gain some perspective and clarity and reprioritize our lives a little that weekend. But that's for, just part for, of the weekend. There's those, other great things happening. For those listeners who haven't been to a 48 hours, Nate is referring to fictional characters, not actual people who will be at this retreat. (laughs) They seem so real to me. (laughs) Well, at first I thought you were talking about real people and then you gave the names. I'm like, Hey, those are like the names in the story from 48 hours. And then I realized what you're, so if I was confused, I just wanted to catch up our listeners a little bit. Okay. All right. So 48 hours is very cool, though we're not doing the whole thing. Uh, But one of the features is you basically walk through a story of other men's journeys, and then you jump in with your own. And it's just a great way to to take that interior adventure. Mm. So we're going to do part of that. But you were saying there's other things as well. 
Oh yeah, we've got. Uh, well, we will do. Uh, we'll tape a live episode of the Pirate Monk podcast while we're there. Yeah, so you uh, all can be a part of that. Jeff Schulte from Tin Man Ministries will be back Friday night. Those who were there last week. It was just absolutely unforgettable the way he set up the weekend. Uh, tremendous uh, teacher, and so he'll be there on Friday night. And we've got uh, workshops. Uh, also on the weekend, Sam Black is coming down from Covenant Eyes. Uh, uh, Tom Ryan will be there. Uh, the Ashamed No More guy. Uh, it's yeah, it's going to be a, it's going just going to be a super weekend and a great time for uh, our guys who are in virtual groups and virtual meetings uh, to actually get to hug each other, hang out around the fire. Yeah. But by the way, one of my great blessings this week has been I was finally invited into a group chat for one of the virtual meetings. And uh, although I had to turn the notifications off on my phone because that daggone thing just dings all day long as guys who really are on not just all around the country, but all around the globe are in each other's lives uh, hour to hour, sometimes minute to minute uh, doing life together. Another beautiful example of the way that technology is being redeemed. Uh, yeah, it's been as inspiring to just kind of sit in the corner and watch and listen. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I'm excited about our guest today. Uh, we're talking about sacred language. Mm. Uh, and, and the challenge of sacred language in a modern world. Yeah. Uh, even as... <laughs> the word the phrase sacred language seems so disconnected yeah because it's not the language we use yeah but uh i i hope all the listeners will realize how everybody has sacred language going on especially christians we just don't always acknowledge it as such and so our guest today has spent a lot of time thinking through this topic all right yeah it's going to be a stimulating conversation before we bring on the guest we're going to give you just the first, I think, seven minutes of that opening story from the original 48 Hours, just a, uh, just a beginning, just an introduction of the primary characters. Uh, those who've been to a weekend will smile, I think, in recognition, and those who are going to meet these fellows for the first time in November are going to get a bit, bit of a head start on the weekend. So Again, here it is. Nate is talking about fictional people that you will be meeting. <laughs> All right, here it goes. The very first time he'd attended a meeting of the Samson Society, Donnie Petrosky had introduced himself by saying, I'm Donnie, and I'm here because I'm addicted to everything. That was three months ago. Looking back on it now, what Donnie wished he'd said was, I'm here because I'm addicted to everything except success. He'd agreed to go to that first meeting because, at the time, his life was an even bigger disaster than usual. He'd just lost his driver's license because of a DUI. And with that, he'd automatically lost his job because you can't very well sell and deliver office equipment in three counties on foot. He hadn't really liked that job, but he'd been there six months and was just starting to make some decent money. He felt so bad about losing it that he went out that night and got drunk and high. The rest of the night was 
kind of a blur. But when he woke up the next morning, he discovered that his girlfriend had packed up and moved out. So at least something good had come out of the whole mess. His mother, God bless her, had been worried about him. She'd come over a couple days later and made him lunch. And then, over grilled cheese and tomato soup, she'd ask him whether he'd be willing to sit down for a talk with her pastor. Well, except for a couple of weddings and a funeral or two, Donnie hadn't been to church since he was 16. He really didn't want to go now, but the way his mother was looking at him, he just couldn't say no. So a couple hours later, he finds himself in the study of this preacher who turns out to be not such a bad guy. Toward the end of their conversation, the preacher tells Donnie about this group that meets at his church, asks whether Donnie would like him to pass his name along to these guys. Donnie had said okay, never intending to follow up. But then, about 20 minutes after he got home, the phone rang. voice on the other end said, Donnie Petrosky? Yeah, who's this? Name's George. Samson Society. Meeting tonight. Pick you up? Donnie said, uh, well... Guy said, I know your mother. Nice lady. Donnie said, uh, what time? Guy said, 6.30. Hung up. At 6.25, Donnie was sitting on his front porch when he saw a jeep come around the corner. Not a Chrysler jeep not one of those with chrome and air and automatic, but an army jeep from back in the day. Olive green paint, flat windscreen, open top. The first thing he noticed about the driver when the guy got out was that he was freaking huge. He was old, bald, white goatee, but he looked like a barn door coming down the walk. Donnie met him at the bottom of the steps, stuck out a hand. Donnie Petrosky, he said. Guy said, George Marshall. Let's get there. As he, as he was getting into the Jeep, Donnie noticed that behind the seats was a platform of some kind with what looked like a swivel in the middle of it. He said, what's that? George started the Jeep and said, machine gun mount. And they were off. When they got to the church, there was only one car in the parking lot, a truck, actually, a pickup, with C3 construction painted on the side. They went in through a back door, went downstairs, into a room where some folding metal chairs had been arranged in a circle. There was one guy sitting there, mid to late 40s, wearing jeans and cowboy boots and an expensive-looking shirt. He got up and gave George a hug, George said, Sam, Donnie. Donnie, Sam. Sam said, Nice to meet you, Donnie. Glad you're here. Donnie could hear feet on the stairs now, and other guys were coming into the room. Each new guy who came in came over and shook hands with Donnie, told him his first name. Donnie didn't even try to remember. But sitting there, as the room filled up, waiting for the meeting to start, Donnie looked around and tried to figure out what it was that these guys had in common. It wasn't age, as one guy looked even older than George. There were a couple of young guys who looked like they were barely out of high school, and then there was a whole bunch of guys in the middle. It wasn't race, it wasn't any style that he could see. 
And then a guy with a notebook in his lap said, I'm Frank. Everybody said, Hi, Frank. And then Donnie got it. He'd been conned into coming to an AA meeting. Donnie had attended a few AA meetings in his life, usually to satisfy a judge or to make somebody else happy. He knew that AA was a good organization, that it helped a lot of people, but it had never done anything for him. But this meeting was different. They opened with prayer, read something from the Bible, had some other readings that mentioned God and Christ and sin. When they went around and introduced themselves by first name, nobody said he was an alcoholic. Of course, nobody pretended to have it together either. A couple guys kind of alluded to problems they were having. That's when Donnie decided just to cover all the bases and say that he was addicted to everything. Then they counted off. Most of the guys got up and left. Donnie found himself sitting in a small circle with four other guys for sharing time. The topic was honesty. Donnie listened as the other guys shared. They said some pretty honest things. Then they sat in silence for a while. Finally, Donnie spoke up. He gave him some crap about honesty that he'd heard in AA. But then he found that once he'd gotten started talking, it was kind of hard to stop. He found himself saying some things he hadn't exactly planned to say. He told him about the DUI and about the job and about the girlfriend. And then he said, I really don't know who to be pissed at right now. I'm mostly pissed at myself. I feel stupid and a little afraid. I have no idea what I'm going to do next. Thanks. And the guys all looked him straight in the eye and said, Thanks, Donnie. And for some reason, he felt better. Well, welcome back in the Pirate Monk Podcast. We have uh, a, a fascinating guest joining us today. I have uh, just finished his book, which uh, I can very, very highly recommend, although it's not a quick read, unless you're a lot smarter than I am, uh, uh, because it's provocative. You're going to stop. You're going to think. He delves deep. Uh, a, a wide-ranging intellect uh, from a fascinating Christian brother, Jonathan Merritt. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. The, the pleasure is all mine. Uh, now, Jonathan is, uh, first of all, let me just tell you, I don't, I don't know how somebody writes as much as Jonathan at his uh, young age, because you don't look like an old guy to me. How old are you? I am 35 years old. That's an impolite question, but I'm going to... Oh, you're welcome to ask it. 35 years old. You're welcome to ask it, yes. (laughs) So somebody 35 years old has published 3,000 articles in prestigious publications. He's a regular uh, contributing editor at the Atlantic magazine that's written for the New York Times. And and let me see, you are... um, I don't have the list in front of me, but by gosh. Um, yeah. I want to get, get more into your story. I want to talk about what you've learned through a battle with chronic pain. But let's let's get some backstory. You live in New York City or, or in Brooklyn. Is that where you are? I do. I live in Brooklyn. I'm sitting here right now looking 
out my window at the the World Trade Center. Okay, fantastic. Right across the water from Manhattan. Uh Mm -hmm. Uh, But you are not a uh, New York born and bred. You're a Southern boy. Mm-hmm. I was raised uh, uh, in uh, Atlanta, actually, outside of Atlanta, and uh, lived there for most of my life, but moved here just about five years ago, almost to the day, actually. I see you got a very generous and complimentary uh, endorsement of your book from Andy Stanley, one of my heroes. Uh, did you know Andy back in the day? I, I've known Andy uh, for uh, a few years, and... Um, is someone that I have a lot of respect for. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, I'm fascinated by this book. The, the title of the book, by the way, and it, it is Learning to Speak God from Scratch. And as I understand it, uh, this project kind of came to you when you realized uh, that the Christians that you associate with and you associate with a lot of Christians and you have a very broad, what I love, one of the things and many things I love about you, Jonathan, is you got, you got Christian friends all over the place. You haven't stayed in the single part of the ghetto. Um, but you've noticed that Christians don't tend to talk about God a lot. What did you find out about what our trend is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this was, this was firstly a, a personal epiphany. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you talked about being raised in the South. I moved five years ago up to uh, New York. And at this yeah. time, actually, I was discovering something that you kind of hinted at there. I had written three books uh, by the time I was 30 years old mm. and was, I think, uh, aware enough of my own uh, limitations to know that a 30-year-old doesn't have a whole lot of wisdom to share with the world. And so 150,000 words was more wisdom than I had to share. So I, just, <laughs> I just decided I'm putting down the pen. I am not going to write another book until I feel I have something the world needs to hear. And, you know, the industry these days, they want you to produce a book every two years. Every two oh, years. sure, yeah. So that was five and a half years ago. And in the middle of that, I moved to New York City and ran into a language barrier. Uh, I, it was not that I couldn't speak English. I could speak English as well as I always could, uh, but I could no longer speak God. Uh, I could mm-hmm. no longer, I no longer felt confident to have spiritual conversations and to use sacred words that, that the people that I was meeting here in New York worked from a different script. Mm-hmm. They they either had never heard the words I was using or they had heard them used in wildly different ways. Mm-hmm. And I try to use certain words and they become so negative in connotation, words like sin, they'd get stuck in my throat. Mm-hmm. Or I'd use other words and they were words like grace that I'd used so much I didn't even know what they meant anymore. Somebody would ask and stop me and ask for a definition and I couldn't think of one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just sort of realized that uh, over time, I wasn't having conversations about spirituality at all. Well, I began to talk with friends in different places and spaces from different Christian traditions who said, I too have been having this struggle. I, I, I find it difficult in my workplace, in uh, coffee shops with friends, even in my church to have these kinds of conversations to speak God, if you will. 
And that's when I took a look at the data and I saw that this is a sweeping uh, cultural crisis in the Western world, particularly in the United States. And that's when I decided it was time to pick up the pen again and to write the book that uh, you now have in your hands, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. The subtitle is Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. So one of the first things you must have run into, uh, whether in yourself or others, is to even approach the idea of changing sacred words uh, is a betrayal of scripture. It is a betrayal of your love of or the authority of God's word. You can't just change these things, even though a lot of the words aren't in there that we hold so sacred. But how did, did you feel that personally, that this is dangerous? Am I now becoming weird? Yeah. So once I once I realized that sacred words were in crisis, and I realized that really from twin trends I noticed. One is the decline of sacred words themselves. So Google has compiled all of the books and all of the articles and all of the blogs and all of the speeches and uh, all of the words that have been produced in the English language going back to like the 1500s. And they're searchable. So you can search the frequency uh, and usage of different words over time. What we have found is, is that religious words, moral words, ethical words, uh, spiritual words have been in precipitous decline uh, since at least the 1950s. Some of them have declined by up to 50%. And not just big theological words, but courage words. Kindness words, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, words that we, we Christians would call the fruit of the Spirit are all in precipitous decline. I feel so like, that, I feel like that, our listeners would not be surprised that like the word boobs has eclipsed saucerdotalism on Google. Pro- I, probably not. I don't know if there was a time where, where, where it ever didn't. Uh, but yes, you're probably, you're probably right. I think... Uh, the, the other trend that sort of went along with this was the decline of spiritual conversation. So I conducted a national survey of over a thousand people and said, how often do you have spiritual religious conversations? And was shocked that in a country like the United States, widespread religiosity here, over 70% of Americans claim to be Christian. Uh, only 7% say they have a spiritual conversation about once a week, which is not that often. And wow. if you look at practicing Christians, you know, you know, religious folks in the Christian church, only 13% say they have a spiritual conversation about once a week. So this was shocking. But then when I began to sort of uh, think about how we could reimagine these words, which is part of the way that you revive sacred language— Uh, I noticed that a lot of people out there said implicitly, don't touch these sacred cows. Mm -hmm. Let them graze in the pasture. The problem is, is they're all dying. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and they actually need uh, a little bit of medicine. They -hmm. need a little bit of reviving or there won't be any cows anymore. That sacred speech will, will die in our lifetime. And so there are many out there who say, we have to circle the wagons. We have to protect these sacred words and the realities that they point to. But which what is, I realized two was... two different things, right? Well they, well, they are often two different things. But 
protecting words, what I call fossilizing, is one of the fastest ways to kill off a language of any kind. Mm. Can, oh, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, uh, I love, Jonathan, that you took a step back really and studied, you took a study, undertook a study of language itself, uh, rather than immediately just focusing on sacred language. Right. And what are some of the insights you gained from what you learned about linguistics mm-hmm. that apply uh, to sacred words? And in fact, I'll let me kind of piggyback on that because I, I have a question I think relates and then you can figure out how those two questions fit together. <laughs> okay. When you said you did this survey and people weren't having spiritual conversations, that feels like a separate topic than the words themselves. But you've tied those in, which I think relates to what Nate's talking about. How does the lack of having a desire or a forum to have conversations fit with these sacred words? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so the words themselves declining, if you're talking about a subject, you would expect that words related to that subject would come up. How mm-hmm. else do you talk about a subject without using words related to that subject? So the decline of sacred words alone tells us we're not talking about these things, or it at least uh, indicates that. The problem is, is that certain words have been commandeered. So, for example, you go to your local evangelical megachurch, and they will talk about going to Sunday school, and they'll say, you need to invest in a small group. Well, if that word appears in a transcription, it's not going to show up as a sacred word. In fact, the word invest will show up primarily as an economic word. Mm -hmm. But the person speaking it will know it was spiritual in nature. So what I had to do was I had to ask the people themselves whether they were having spiritual conversations to test whether those decline, that decline in words was actually showing us what I thought it was showing us or whether it was indicating that there were just new words that were being used in a spiritual context that we were not tracking necessarily. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of why I, I tied those together. Um, so a decline in conversations we consider to be spiritual, whether or not the words themselves are widely known to be sacred, or a decline in the words that we consider to be sacred, those words sort of overlapping gave me uh, the two data points that I needed to really understand what was happening. That's when that's what sort of spurred me to figure out, okay, uh, something is happening here in the language of faith, but how does language work? I don't know. I didn't have a background in linguistics. So that's when I went to study linguistics. And that study uh, took me about a year, and uh, I found two things that were fascinating. One, it, it d- demonstrated why this mattered which is an emerging body of research in linguistics that shows that the words we use shape the thoughts we think, and the thoughts we think shape the behaviors we exhibit. So, for example, uh, uh, an example I use in the book is future language. So English, you know, is a future language. We have a future tense. Other languages are not futured. They use the same tense, and you figure out in context where, what, what tense they're talking about. What's the difference? The difference is, is when you compare a future language to a non-futured language, you find that the cultures that use futured languages think about the future more, 
and their behaviors exhibit a knowledge of the future. They smoke less. They save more for retirement, by and large. Uh, they practice more safe sex than languages without a future tense. So the words we use shape the things we think about, shape the behavior patterns that we express. How, what does that mean? The fewer, uh, the, the less that we use sacred words, the less that we talk about God, the less we talk about faith, the less we talk about courage and community and compassion, the less we think about those things, the less that our minds collectively as a culture are attuned to those transcendent realities, and the less that our lives are built around courage and compassion, for example. So you've seen in the English-speaking world a decline in communal language, an increase in individualistic language. No wonder we're an individualistic people. We're talking a lot about me, 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 mm -hmm. not about us, us, us. So you see that showing up. The other thing that I learned about linguistics that was fascinating, and this is something that's interesting because, you know, linguists are like theologians. They don't agree about much, but they do agree about this, that every language, every language without exception will either change or it will die. That's mm. it. It will either trend toward evolution or extinction. And that means that if we are going to revive sacred speech, sacred words. We have got to allow the vocabulary of faith to be reimagined and to evolve in our midst. If we don't, it will die. So why, because you, you talked about Christians circling the wagons, we have to protect sacred words because... Or the, or, or the meaning we have attached to or, sacred words. Well, that, that's kind of the upward movement. If we don't preserve the words, the meaning will be lost. And you're saying that linguists would agree that the words can change without the meaning being lost. So why have Christian theologians conflated those two as being necessarily connected? Preserve the words so that the meaning will remain. Well, I think, I think that what most people don't know, or they do know, but they've, they've never named it. And there's a difference between knowing and naming something. That words, there's nothing sacred about certain letters being strung together in a particular order. All that does is create uh, a box to put an idea in. It's a, it's a carrier pigeon of information. It's a signpost pointing to something. So what happens is, is that people are not really concerned about losing the word grace, the letters strung together, they're concerned about losing the idea that grace has pointed to for them for some period of time. But the meanings of words are always changing. And that actually is true. I talk about this in the book. Um, what most people don't know, and I won't say most people, what many Christians, particularly those Christians who like to fossilize words, don't understand is that sacred words have been changing in meaning for all time. Even in the Bible, you're watching words evolve as time goes on. I use an example in this book, the word sin. The word sin shifts in meaning multiple times as the Bible is written. The earliest uh, Hebrew conceptions of sin have shifted by the time you have temple Judaism, and they've morphed again by the time the New Testament is written. So, for example, if you look at temple Judaism, sin is understood to be a weight, and the weight of sin is understood collectively, not individualistically. So 
the more our community acts in certain ways together, the more there's this heaviness that descends upon us. So every year you get together, the Day of Atonement, you lay your hands on the scapegoat, you chase the scapegoat out into the wilderness, and the weight is lifted off the community's shoulders for a time. Over time, it descends again, and you have to do it again. By the time the New Testament is written, you don't hear that language. You don't hear sin uh, talked about in terms of weight. Sin is talked about in terms of debt. So you have, for example, the Apostle Paul says, the wages of sin is death. If, if, the, if Paul had gotten in a time machine and gone back to Temple Judaism and said, the wages of sin is death, no one would have, it would have sounded silly. It would have been like, what are you talking about? Sin is a debt that has to be repaid? Uh, I don't understand that. And once it's paid, is it, it's paid off forever, and you can pay it, it has some individual implication. It's a bizarre thought for uh, a, temple, uh, a temple Judaism uh, follower of God. Uh, it, was, it was odd. And Jesus adds this kind of reciprocal component to it. Jesus sort of has in his conception, well, if sin debits out of some divine account, maybe there's some way to deposit into a divine account. So he says, store up yourself, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Now, that's weird. You don't read that in the Old Testament. That's not, nobody says anything like that. Now you fast forward. You get out into early Christianity and all the way into churches today, and you could walk into, again, your local church, and you might hear a pastor say something like, we have a sin problem. That is a weird conception uh, with either the, the first or the second testaments in our Bible. You will not find sin as a problem that needs a solution. Uh, somebody will say, you have a sin sickness. But no, again, you're not going to hear clinical language uh, in the Bible attached to sin. Or somebody might say, uh, you know, we have... Um, that, 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 that sin is a breaking of a law. You break a law, that's a sin. These are, these are, there are all these conceptions that you will encounter, and they, they kind of rise and fall in prominence. But you don't look back on the early uses of the word and think, well, they were talking about sin as a problem. They just didn't write it down. It's no, they had never conceived of it in that way. So language has always been changing. Right. Most of us just don't recognize that. So what are the dangers? Uh, you know, many evangelical Christians come from a dispensationalist heritage where language became very, had very specific meanings attached that are only a couple hundred years old. But the assumption is this is the way it's always been. So what are the dangers when we don't recognize that our words carry with it a tradition that might be recent and has been changing? Well, I would say it's not just dispensationalism that has caused this. It is uh, the advent of dictionaries. So uh, the advent of dictionaries has, has, has given us this idea that all words have a definition, and those words' definitions are fixed, static, immutable, yeah. static, uh, universal. But a dictionary is basically uh, just a record of the way that words are being used, not 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 the definition of that word for all time. And but that's the conception that it's given us. So we're chill, we're post enlightenment thinkers. And we, we are children of Merriam-Webster, 
And that's the way we believe. So if you tell somebody, you know, it comes from an evangelical tradition, well, you know, that word has changed over time. They'll say, no, it doesn't. Here I have a Greek lexicon and it has the definition in it. They, They don't have a knowledge of the way that language has worked. And so I think what I'm trying to do in this book is to show people the way language has always worked and the way language will always work. And, and evangelicals in particular and fundamentalists, uh, they either have to accept this or they have to accept the consequences of rejecting this. I wonder if you can talk for a minute about the nuances uh, that are inherent in language, especially in Hebrew. I, I, I find it entertaining sometimes uh, to hear an exegetical preacher do a word study. And so he'll say, here's this Hebrew word, and it can mean, and he'll start to go through the list of the things that it can mean. Uh, and it's unbelievable, the range. And then we'll, and I've been guilty of this myself. I pick the one most closely to the point I want to make. Uh, what are the implications? First of all, talk about the nuances of language. And then what door does this open for us uh, as modern Christians? Uh, do we have to abandon these words that we grew up with? And is that even a good idea? Or, uh, you know, yeah, where do we go from here? Go ahead. Yeah, I think, I think that it's, t- this is going to maybe sound surprising. I think it's totally appropriate to read a range of meanings of a word and pick one. I think that what is uh, not helpful is when you only and for all time pick one. Right. So the the predominant Jewish conception is that there were multiple meanings to these words. Mm-hmm. And by entering into each of these meanings and exploring them, we would learn something new. We would peel back a layer to what that might have meant. So that the same is true if you look at parables, for example. I mean, I, you know, in the 1920s, the predominant thought was every parable has a meaning. Now the predominant thought is, is that every parable has at least three meanings. Mm-hmm. So we're starting to realize, like, these are rich. Uh, these are rich in meaning. And, and in, in, in the Jewish conception, they believed that every word had the thing that it meant, the thing that it means, or the things that it meant, the things that it meant, means, and the things that it will mean that we, don't e- we can't even conceive of yet. And they would get together and play with these words. Now, we don't do that. So the pastor pulls up all these definitions, and rather than wondering aloud about a particular meaning, he chooses one over and against all the other meanings. I think that's not particularly helpful. Right, and, and yet that is how we teach hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. It's how do you come to the one meaning, what did this mean then and always, whereas the you, you're describing ancient Jewish styles of interpreting the Bible, which that's not how that worked at all. But we're told if we don't do that, then we're some kind of wishy-washy liberal Christian, and the Bible doesn't mean anything. If it doesn't mean one thing, it means nothing. Yeah, and 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 right now the the predominant American, I would say, evangelical way of approaching language is totally unbiblical. And when I use that word, I mean, it's not an approach you will find in the text. Uh, In the text, you find language changing and people playing with words. Um, 
you know, in, in the book, I talk about midrash, midrash, this, mm-hmm. this, this discipline of, of getting together in community and dreaming about language and what texts mean and sort of filling in the cracks with your imagination. Uh, this is essentially what the New Testament is. It's one giant piece of midrash. It is an imaginative approach. I mean, if you look at the way that Jesus uh, and Paul and the New Testament writers are taking uh, Old Testament passages and ascribing new meanings to those words, they were provocative. I mean, it wasn't like uh, people were upset at Jesus and Paul because they were just like reading out of a commentary. I mean, they were coming up with provocative, new, radical ways of re-understanding. Right. You uh, have heard it texts. said, but I say type statements. Yes, that's that's exactly right. And And I think that that has been lost, that the way that Jesus interpreted and played with words, the way that Paul interpreted and played with words, the way that the Old Testament writers, the prophets certainly did, uh, has been lost on us. Okay, but if, I, if I'm if i the evangelical Christian listening to this right now, and I haven't considered this, uh, this is scary stuff. And how do, yeah. you, how do you answer someone that says you're just taking away all the authority of Scripture? Mm. Well, I, I would say, first of all, uh, you know, I, this, my book is really silent on the authority of Scripture. It's sort of actually, as I would say, it's assumed that the Scripture is authoritative in, in my work because I can agree that the Bible is the authority and yet also assert that it may not mean only what you think it means. So what I'm actually hoping to do is not to drive people away from the Bible. I want to drive people back to the Bible. I don't want to drive people to an extra biblical approach. I want to open their eyes to see what the biblical approach was, what all of these writers were doing, uh, what the early Christians were doing, what Christians until until recent days have been doing, so that they can recreate this in their own lives. And I think, you know, if people pick up the book and read it, and of course they can judge for themselves, Uh, I think that they will find that there is high regard for the Bible in this text, but where it may lead them will be different than what they expected. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if I could uh, shift the conversation here in a more personal direction. Uh, Your book is very intellectual. It's scholarly. It's well footnoted. It's well researched. Uh, But there there are also um, elements of memoir. And you allow us to uh, to see your own life and uh, the reality of uh, the circumstances in which you uh, have grown and matured and really how you were feeling and coping even during researching and writing this book. Uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit about this unexpected uh, collision with chronic pain? and uh, where you are and what, what, what you have learned and are learning from it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, <clears throat> no, I've never written about this before, so this is the first place I've ever shared it. And, you know, it's funny. You're the first people that have asked me about it. So uh, mm. that's, it's interesting. Uh, in the midst of this book, you, you, you notice uh, the first part of the book is everything we've talked about. Yeah. 
The second half of the book is a series of, I don't know, 17 or so different essays on different words where I'm reimagining them. They're words like sin and grace and blessed and pride and confession and God, mystery. Uh, and I know that those words are sort of arbitrary, but I really do believe that in some cases I pick the words and in other cases the words pick me. And mm. one of the essays is on pain and it is a word uh, I never would have picked. Uh, I certainly didn't intend to. But in the middle of writing this book, I woke up and I couldn't feel my hands. And, you know, you cannot imagine what that does to a person who is a writer. I mean, I, I eat what I kill and mm -hmm. I kill with my hands. So to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to have those to, to make a living, to survive, to pay the rent, to eat. And, uh, that over many days, uh, spread it, it went to my arms, to my shoulders. It changed from lack of sensation to a painful sensation, ran down my back into my knees, my neck. And, uh, you know, I recount in the book seeing, I saw six neurologists, two primary care doctors, two rheumatologists, uh, an orthopedist, uh, naturopaths, uh, chiropractors, uh, Hasidic Jewish healers. I mean, anyone and everyone you can imagine. Uh, and no one could tell me what was going on. A psychiatrist, by the way, uh, psychiatrist, psychologist, counselors, multiples. Uh, and it was the most hopeless, devastating thing I've ever been through. I was at one point where I thought, I'm going to have to leave. I'm going to have to move home. I'm going to have to quit my job. I'm going to have to live in my parents' basement. Uh, because I could only work about three hours of the day. I was having panic attacks. I was highly medicated, pain meds, anti-epileptic meds, nerve pills, anxiety meds, uh, pop, you know, popping Valiums and Xanax in between just to get through the day. And um, it was really difficult. And what I realized in that was I began to reimagine what pain means. And I realized in this that, the, that, that Christian communities have some really insufficient understandings of pain, particularly in light of the fact that over 100 million Americans, perhaps as much as twice uh, that number, are experiencing chronic pain. Uh, most of those people would say that they would spend every penny they, they, they have in the bank if they could get rid of that pain. Uh, many people commit suicide as a result of that pain. I'll tell you, I was very close to that at uh, mm -hmm. one point, and it was very scary. Um, and yet, we have such an underdeveloped understanding of pain. And I talk in the book about the two kind of polar opposites. One is pain is, uh, is always bad. And you have to get rid of it. And God doesn't want you to have it, and God will take it away from you. Um, it's probably a result of your sin or maybe a result of your faithlessness. So you go into a faith healer church or charismatic expressions, and they want to just get rid of it. Or in most evangelical churches, there's this understanding sort of tacitly. In uh, more mystical or uh, new monastic traditions, pain is great, suffering is great. In extreme 
uh, communities, you know, they will self-flagellate or crucify themselves to identify with God. And, and pain is the primary portal through which we encounter the divine. Both of those are horrible for a person living in pain. Because if you can't get rid of it, if your pain is chronic rather than acute, mm -hmm. it doesn't go away. Telling somebody that they should get rid of it and God wants them to get rid of it when it doesn't go away says, does God not love me? Am I not praying hard enough? Uh, how do I have more faith? Um, it's exhausting. On the other hand, saying, well, your pain is a good thing when it really isn't a good thing. It really is a very bad thing. You wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy is a cruel way to talk about pain. And I think that, that both of those understandings of pain are true partially They're, they they are they are the truth but not the whole truth that mm. pain god god does not wish for us to have pain god does not i think enjoy seeing his children in pain but pain is a necessary reality of life on earth and so long as we are here we might as well learn what it can teach us about ourselves about others and uh, about God, that it is a terrible teacher, as I say in the book. And so what I hope to do through my own personal journey is to spark a reimagination of the word pain. And I think we badly need it. You know, if you go to, if you go to Amazon right now and type in theology of, you'll find everything. You'll find a theology of almost everything. You will not find a theology of pain. And that's breathtaking, mm -hmm. really breathtaking to think so, about that in the moment we live in. So where are you at now with that? You know, I, I have, uh, through a combination of a couple of things, some, some alternative means, some nutrition, learning to manage the, the triggers uh, of that pain. And then I found a doctor that was really helpful with, with giving, uh, helping me to establish a, a medical protocol for it. I would say it's totally manageable. Mm. Uh, right now I have some pain, uh, right on my, my left shoulder, some tightness that kind of runs down into my chest on a one to 10 scale. I used to live on a one to 10 scale at about a seven. Uh, and now I'd say it's right now at this moment, I'm about a two and most days I'm between a one and a three. Uh, and that's totally manageable. Mm -hmm. So, I've learned to, I don't think, I don't know that it's a problem that I'll solve. Yeah. Some days I have no pain, actually, and that never happened before. So, uh, so I'm dealing with all of the triggers, lack of sleep, travel, uh, stress, uh, drinking too much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all of those things can trigger it. So as I began to observe what was triggering it, even though I don't know the origin of it, I know what makes it worse. So, and so what are the things, yeah, what are the things, some of the things, yeah, you've listed them, but go ahead and talk. What are some of the things that you have learned from pain, even though pain is a terrible teacher? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, it has taught me something that I guess, I guess I already knew, but I hadn't really owned, which is I'm mortal. Yeah. Uh, that I am, <laughs> I do not have um, unlimited energy. Yeah. Um, you know, I say, and I'll, I'll read this because I just found it in the book. It says, on my own pain journey, I've begun pausing to reflect, to listen to the lessons pain is trying to teach. I've learned that I'm not omnipotent and must relinquish control of my present as well as my future. I've realized I am not infinite and should enjoy each day without rushing through. I've learned that I am 
not as compassionate, at least not as much as I assumed. And I now find myself more attentive to painful cries around me. And I've also stopped taking, and this is important, any pain-free moments for granted. So gratitude is now a greater part of my life rhythm. Oh, so good. So good. Now, because you've learned these lessons, this will be instructive for us. What is your first response to people when they tell you they have chronic pain? You know, in the past, it was, I was a, um, there were a couple responses. And uh, there's a great article that a friend of mine named Kate Bowler wrote about responding to people with tragedy, and I would overlay this to pain, where she says some people are minimizers. They'll say, well, it could be worse. You know, you could, you could be like, uh, I saw some children in Rwanda who are starving on TV the other day. At least you're not starving. Mm-hmm. And there's a real minimizing effect when you do that. There are other people, I think, and this would be the category I used to fall into, was uh, I'm a fixer. Mm-hmm. So immediately I would tell them about this supplement that I heard about or this thing I, re- I listened to on NPR or this article I read that would totally fix their problem. And have you ever tried this? And have you tried this? And have you tried this? And it places such a burden on, on people because I went through that. Everybody told me about the magic tea and, uh, you know, if you just get off, if stop eating meat, you're going to be great. And I tried it all. And after a while I was exhausted. And I think what I've learned to do is shift the energy from my mouth to my ears and my arms. I, I, I reach out. I, I may say, I am so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. And I'll reach out and I'll hug that person. And then I just listen. I just listen. And that's about the best thing you can offer someone in that situation. Because you know what? Pain will drive you to search for solutions. Uh, I, don't, I don't need Johnny Smith down the street telling me about the, you know, the, the miracle herb that he puts in his coffee. Uh, Instead, I just need Johnny to listen to me and tell me he's sorry because in that moment, I don't feel like people see my pain. I don't feel like people feel my pain. I don't. I feel very alone and isolated in the pain. And I just need somebody to join me in the pain and to stand with me in the pain and to hold me in the pain. And, you know, believe it or not, it sounds like, well, that's not too hard. It's actually a far, a far more difficult thing to do mm. when you confront someone who's, who's, who is drowning in pain. Boy, I think you just described Jesus' emotional condition in Gethsemane when he just needed some friends to sit there with him. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And it was yeah. just too hard. So, yeah, it must, it must be hard. Mm-hmm. Can we shift gears for one more question, one more thought before we wrap things up? Nate, you, you gave the inhale that was saying you're about to transition out. <laughs> I know that inhale. It's a specific one. Okay. I, I want to bring this back to words and back to our audience. As, as you talk about sacred language, I can't help thinking about the development of that and how it created the priest class, even in evangelical Christianity. And that Jesus, speaking to peasants, was talking about such simple things that anyone could understand. 
And it seems like you're saying we need to re-engage words in such a way that everybody gets to participate and doesn't need the priest slash pastor who has the secret knowledge of sacred words. Uh-huh. Will you talk a little bit about how this applies to normal people, not not saintly pastors, but normal people finding the power of sacred words? Uh-huh. Yeah, there are there are. I would say it's it, it's both and. Uh, you do, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> you do need you do need the thought leaders and the pastors uh, participating in this to some mm-hmm. degree. Uh, you find that when a language is revived, it's often the writers and the speakers who uh, help to drive it. But they cannot do this alone. You need people in their own communities doing this. People gathered around their kitchen tables having these conversations. People in their small groups. People at, the, again, their PTA meetings and their community gatherings in their workplaces. Uh, because uh, in part because... We are, even though you have that priestly class, people aren't showing up at the temple anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So people, by and large, are not going to church as often as they used to. And those who are going to church are going to church less frequently than they used to. You know, nobody goes to church four times a week anymore. You're lucky if you get an hour out of somebody. And so the, the, the priestly class, if you will, does not have the uh, captive audience that they used to. Additionally, postmodernism has brought a skepticism of authority. I actually trust you less if you're a pastor. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you look up, you look up uh, some of the studies that have been done on public trust recently, and I think like there are a few groups uh, that are less trustworthy than pastors. One yeah. of them is used car salesmen. I was going to say it's always right next to used car salesmen <laughs> right? in those lists. Always, they're not, they're not. They're not super trustworthy. So you cannot. You cannot rely for the revival of sacred speech. You cannot rely on uh, individuals who are speaking less frequently to people and are speaking with less credibility to people than ever before. But we we have to have regular folks who are driving this forward. But that is a beautiful responsibility that you're handing to every Christian to guard the trust. And I I hope that that feels like a responsibility, but also an awesome opportunity for those that aren't seminary educated, that they are the keepers of these things. You know, you know, there was a Barna study that came out a number of years ago that showed the reason why most people, particularly young people, are leaving the church. And one of the reasons was uh, they say, my church doesn't welcome my doubts. My church doesn't welcome my questions. What I am doing, I think, in this book is giving people permission to speak freely. I'm giving them permission to do what they already want to do. Uh, that's why they're not showing up in churches oftentimes anymore because they want to have these conversations and they're told that they're not allowed to have these conversations. And what I'm saying is in this book, you don't need to go to church to have these conversations. You can do it right wherever you live, work, and play. Uh, in the back of the book is a how-to guide for seekers and speakers. You can take that guide and you can do it even if you haven't been in a church in two decades. You can implement that right in your home, right where, right, right in your in your uh, poker group uh, with your drinking buddies, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Whatever, wherever you gather, you can use that guide, and I think that is exactly where it has to happen. All right. So the book again is learning to speak God from scratch. 
The author is Jonathan Merritt. Uh, how can our listeners uh, interact with you, reach you with uh, follow-up questions, comment, or uh, other engagement? Yep, they can. Uh, go to my website, probably is the best way, uh, Jonathan Merritt, M-E-R-R-I-T-T.com, or they can follow me there on social media. I have an e-newsletter uh, where I send the most important headlines each week. They'll find a, a whole little universe there that hopefully will help them out. <laughs> oh, fantastic. What a, what a treat it has been uh, to sit with you. Thank you for giving us some of your time, Jonathan. Oh, it is my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Terrific. Okay. All right. Well, uh, after a full meal like that, we will be back in a few minutes here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hope you took a quick brain shower and got yourself loosened up again. Uh, <laughs> a lot yeah. of information. A lot of information, a lot of uh, stimulating and provocative thought there. And I'll tell you what, if, if, if this episode uh, gets me and my brothers uh, bringing, I, I have to admit, I tend to avoid spiritual conversation in certain settings just because I don't want to trigger people. Uh, I've got triggers of my own. It seems safer. I'll talk about recovery so that I can talk spiritual language sideways. Uh, But I I find myself, because I have ambivalent feelings around uh, some sacred language, because frankly, I've been the subject and the provocator of some spiritual abuse connected with those words. Uh, I tend to avoid conversations that I ought to be having. Do you, do you know how smart Jonathan is? This is how smart Jonathan is. Uh, it does not matter if you were upset and disagreed with everything he said or everything he wrote in the book, because then you're going to talk about it and you're doing exactly what he hoped the book would accomplish. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so, 
So some people are going to hate this thing. But yeah, yeah. Don't, don't be afraid to disagree with it. That's cool. Right. Yeah. Because it is, I mean, this is a journey of finding out more and more like, okay, sacred language should stay the same because it is God's vehicle to communicate these very important eternal ideas. Great. If that's your position, the words have to stay, then figure out why you think that and have that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, he's not advocating getting rid of the words. Yeah. He's advocating a conversation about uh, the meaning of the words. Yeah. Yeah. I, that that surprised me a little since, you know, you were sent a copy of the book and all I got was a, a one paragraph description <laughs> I read. <yet. laughs> so I, I did was, have an advantage. Yeah, I'd actually <laughs> been able to read the book. I, I was expecting a, a few different things from him. So that that did surprise me a bit. Yeah. Well, uh, let's see. We want to hear from listeners more questions. And uh, by the time this is posted, registration should be in full swing for... Oh yeah, for for the uh, for the I, I don't even, by then we'll know exactly what we're calling it. But the fall uh, retreat, the big event in Eva, Tennessee, November two through four, and uh, I, with I'm sure there will be a link on the page. There will be a link the on the page. So, yes, absolutely. So go there and, and uh, discounts for group registration. So you bring your Silas, you get in cheaper. You become the three musketeers. You get an even bigger discount, five or more. You get it, even you get a nice big price break. And because we want you to share the experience with your brothers and, and take you bring it on. 10 or more people. You all get to squeeze together in Nate's bunk. <laughs> so discount and sleeping with Nate. There's oh, the that promise. Just, that just sounded creepy. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's a non creepy way to say that. I'm no, 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 no. Hey, <laughs> Uh, questions, pushback, uh, anything about today's episode or about your own life, what's going on, uh, join the conversation. Drop us a line at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. All right. That's about all the time we've got for today. Yeah. Well, until next week, then, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. (laughs) 